Overdraft fees are just the worst. Get up to 200 in fee-free overdraft with the Chime checking account. Sign up today at Chime.com slash Goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Latin American History Podcast, Episode 35, Taino Rebellion. Before starting today, I want to take a minute to mention the Wealth of Nations podcast. It's produced by Ravi Mehta, and it covers international development, politics and economics. The most recent episode is about Brazil, and he looks at the corruption scandal there surrounding the company Petrobras and the turbulent politics which the country now faces. He's also done a few episodes on Puerto Rico, the subject of today's episode. And while I like to think that hopefully my podcast can put today's events in some kind of context, he really dives in to what's happening today and why. If you like to keep up with current affairs, particularly on the international stage, I recommend checking it out. There are two strands to today's story, and they interlink. The troubled relations between the Spanish and the indigenous Taino people, which would descend into full-on rebellion, and the political games taking place amongst the powerful Spaniards. We've already dealt with the background to both of these in previous episodes, but let's quickly recap. We already know the beginning of Puerto Rico's Spanish history. After the explorer Vicente Pinzon failed to take up his charter to conquer the island, the task was given to Juan Ponce de Leon, who completed it with little trouble, and initially just 50 men in the year 1508. He founded a settlement which he called Capara, and which would later become San Juan. He set up the encomienda system, and he managed to set up a reasonably sized gold mining industry. Puerto Rico was de Leon's project, and he split his time between running the colony and the explorations which we looked at last episode, and which would eventually lead to his end. Due to events beyond his control, however, he was not able to build his project without interference. A battle for control of the New World was being waged by Diego Columbus. The younger Columbus was not happy that the exclusive rights to the new world given to his father by King Ferdinand had been ignored, and he mounted a series of legal challenges to win them back. In August 1508, just a month after de Leon had first set off for Puerto Rico, Christopher Columbus's rights were recognised, and as his heir, Diego replaced Ovando as the Viceroy of the Indies. He arrived in Hispaniola a year later to take up his position. By recognising that Columbus and his children had the right to govern, it followed that logically any agreement with de Leon was invalid. Diego was now Viceroy of the Indies, and Puerto Rico's governorship was an administrative subunit of Diego's title. It was he who should have the right to appoint governors to all the lands his father had sighted on his trips, and the king could not appoint them himself. 
the power should lie in Diego's hands. This caused a bit of a headache. Firstly, it would mean dealing with disgruntled men like de Leon, who would suddenly have their positions removed. Secondly, it meant that Diego would have a high level of control over an enormous area. Once these places were properly colonised, this would be too much power concentrated in the hands of one man. De Leon was clearly in the king's good books, plus their interests aligned. So despite having to accept Diego's new position, the king tried to simply ignore his rights to administrate Puerto Rico. Diego appointed three men to run the island, but Ferdinand secretly sent a decree which formalised de Leon's position as governor. Diego's men protested, so de Leon had them sent back to Spain. One of the things I find fascinating about this whole affair is the strength of the 16th century Spanish legal system. While we are now beyond the medieval era and into the early modern, we tend to think of kings as all-powerful, and that our complex legal system is a relatively recent invention. The idea that a monarch could be sued for breach of contract, and that the judiciary would have the independence to rule against him, it seems like the sort of thing which would have been an impossibility at the time. This is not the case. Diego took King Ferdinand to court again, and he won. The court found that Ferdinand could not appoint governors in Puerto Rico, or anywhere else he had agreed to give to the Columbus family. And so Juan Serón, one of Diego's three men, returned to Puerto Rico as governor. Now with all that said, King Ferdinand would later step in, switch things back around again, and have Diego recalled and Serón replaced by de Leon. It's unclear whether he did this by legal means or simply by asserting his rank. Perhaps his justification was the mess that Puerto Rico became under Serón's leadership. That's all in the future, however. Saron had a few years in charge, and during that time he managed to oversee the beginning of a large rebellion against the Spanish. The problem started with the death of the most powerful cacique on the island. He was known as Aguebana, although this is a title rather than his actual name. It appears that he was accommodating of the Spanish presence on the island, perhaps too much so. He tolerated them, he dutifully flirted with Christianity, and he allowed the encomienda system to draw labour from the ranks of his people. Ponce de Leon seized upon this, and showing good political instinct, he worked with Aguibana, rather than fighting him. He even participated in some sort of traditional alliance ritual, which involved a symbolic swapping of names between the two leaders. While many Taino were probably unhappy with their leader's tolerance, and the Spanish undoubtedly would have moved to take full control at some point soon, for the moment relations were good. De Leon avoided potentially losing men in a violent conquest. Aguibana remained nominally in charge of his people, while De Leon still got the encomienda labour and enough land for the time being. This would all change when Aguebana died in 1510, and his brother inherited the title. The new leader is known to history as Aguebana II, but to save me saying that 50 times, I will refer to him simply as Aguebana. From now on we're talking about the new rebellious ruler, and not the old relaxed one. 
The Spanish had been on the island for a couple of years by this point, and despite their previous ruler's pragmatic approach, many of the Taino were growing understandably frustrated with the demands of being imposed on them by the newcomers. Their chief complaint was the encomienda system, which required them to work on Spanish land and would have severely disrupted their traditional social systems. They would have been well aware of events on Hispaniola, and as the colony there was a decade or so older, they had a good idea of what their future looked like. The lesson that the first Aguaybana had taken away from Hispaniola was that an accommodation would have to be reached. The lesson his successor learned was that unless they took action, their society would be destroyed. To properly set the scene for coming events, we must briefly refresh our memories and understand the Taino political system. Their society was made up of small units, collections of villages, ruled by caciques. When conditions were right, one cacique would establish himself as a supreme leader, with smaller caciques pledging allegiance to him. This gave the caciques a degree of independence, but meant that the leader could direct the energies of the confederation as a whole. Aguebana was in charge, but he was not a king ruling a unified kingdom. At the time de Leon arrived, he had power over much of Puerto Rico, but there were plenty of caciques that were completely independent of him. His confederation had been in existence for several centuries, and his base was on the southern coast, whereas the Spanish settlement was on the north. When he came to power and signalled his intention to resist the Spanish, his confederation was joined by several more caciques, who joined as allies rather than subordinates. The spark which set things off was one of the settlers, a man named Sotomayor. The encomienda system had assigned him some of the first Aguebanaz men, to work his land, but Diego Columbus rejigged things to give that obligation to the second Aguaybana. This was just before he inherited control, but he was already less willing to provide men than his predecessor had been. Soon afterwards, a new set of colonists arrived, and so new caciques were brought into the encomienda system, so that the newcomers had people to work their lands. These caciques now understood firsthand what Spanish rule meant, and the atmosphere became more rebellious. Small skirmishes broke out in various parts of the island, as the Taino refused to work, and the situation forced the Spaniards to bring in enslaved inhabitants from other islands. Aguebana decided that enough was enough, and one day, as Sotomayor was making his way from his farmlands to the settlement, he was ambushed and killed. Aguebana then took off to the forest, and de Leon was sent to locate him. There would be a few small battles over the next couple of months, but the Taino used guerrilla tactics and avoided pitch battles. Word was sent back to Spain outlining the situation, and King Ferdinand gave permission to crack down. This was not yet an all-out rebellion, so Ferdinand's orders were to treat the Taino fairly. Those who continued or to be put to work mining gold, a dangerous and miserable job, and this would set an example. But those who surrendered were to be shown mercy, so as to encourage them to accept Spanish rule. Only two caciques accepted the offer, and what's more, 
Taino from neighbouring islands started appearing in war canoes and raiding the Spaniards on the coastline. Despite the whole island having previously been nominally in Spanish hands, their actual knowledge and settlement of the land was still confined to a small area. The frontiers consisted only of outlying farms and small villages, and these were still being constructed. This made them easy targets, and also meant that most of the island could be traversed and used to hide by the Taino. The Spanish mounted many expeditions over the next six months, even reaching close to Aguebanaz's home village, but apart from capturing a few slaves each time, they were unable to make any real progress. When they attacked, they stopped the Taino from raiding, but they couldn't get the decisive victory they needed, and they couldn't keep this up forever. Despite the uncertainty, the Spaniards kept expanding the best they could, and new settlers kept arriving. Simple slavery started to replace the encomienda system, as the Taino would not submit to it. With Saron firmly in charge, De Leon set off for Florida. There was a lull in fighting for several months, but things flared up again when Aguebana was spotted on the east coast of the island, relatively close to the Spanish settlement. A force of 200 men was assembled, but they were unable to relocate him. Soon afterwards, he decided to stop dancing around and launch a major attack. He marched to Capara and successfully burnt it to the ground. Eighteen Spaniards were killed and the surrounding farmland was razed. The survivors fled to Ponce de Leon's personal villa outside town, although he was, of course, in Florida. Here they managed to avoid further trouble. Now this was a massive setback for the Spanish. Until now, the fighting had been on the fringes, and the Taino had largely been waging a defensive campaign. This shows that they could strike anywhere. Settling a new land is hard enough, and the first few years are especially precarious. Once you've gained a foothold, things start to snowball, but to begin with, you have nothing, and each small gain is difficult to make. To lose your main settlement is a disaster, and now they pretty much had to start from scratch. Luckily, Hispaniola was nearby, and that made rebuilding a lot easier. Supplies were sent, and eventually the settlement was rebuilt as San Juan. A large number of reinforcements also arrived, and the most serious offensive so far by the Spanish was mounted. Large expeditions ventured into the interior, and they succeeded in pacifying parts of the island, although they were still unable to locate and defeat Aguebana and the other rebellious caciques. Part of the reason for this was the loose nature of Taino society. The caciques would come together for large attacks, then they would split up and mount smaller raids. Each one had expert local knowledge of their own traditional areas and was able to exploit it and show the other caciques when they formed up together the best way to go. They continued to attack, and despite the Spanish progress, they twice more threatened San Juan over the next year. During these events, Ponce Leon was on the island, on and off. He returned from Florida for a short period, but then he returned to Spain to tell King Ferdinand of his discoveries. Once that was finished, 
In April 1514 he was back and ready to help out. At this point, however, Diego Columbus was not. He had been recalled to Spain, and as Saron was his man in Puerto Rico, he was recalled as well. Ponce was back in charge, but before he could go and colonize Florida, he had to clean up the mess that Puerto Rico had become. He made gains, an important cacique was persuaded to switch sides and assist the Spanish, and the centre of the island was becoming increasingly stable. But again, progress was slow. It was also becoming clear that the Spanish could not confine their war to Puerto Rico. As I mentioned earlier, small bands of Taino from other islands had been arriving to fight since the beginning of the rebellion. This only increased as time went on. In early 1515, an armada of 150 war canoes had turned up and engaged the Spanish in a battle on the east coast of the island. Soon afterwards, Aguaybana was spotted, not on Puerto Rico, but in Guadalupe. De Leon decided that if Puerto Rico was to be pacified, then the seas needed to be controlled. He gave command of the land campaign to a deputy, and he took to the seas. Now the events of this war are not well recorded, and details can be hard to come by. A perfect example of this is that from this point onwards, Aguaybana seems to disappear from the record. Some historians think that he may have been killed already, and it was not him spotted on Guadalupe. Others think that there is reason to believe that he continued fighting for at least another three years. It's impossible to say for sure. We do know that in early 1516, two important caciques launched an offensive. Unfortunately for them, it ended in failure. After being beaten, they surrendered. This seems to have been the decisive moment of the war. With this surrender, it appears that the uprising no longer really had any chance of succeeding, but that does not mean that it was finished. In fact, rather than having a neat defined end, it gradually and very slowly petered out. There was at least two or three more years of determined fighting, we know that in 1518 the Spanish launched an attack against a cacique who was causing them trouble, and this could possibly have been Aguaybana. We don't know for sure, and we don't know if they were successful in capturing this cacique or not. Serious organised rebellion on Puerto Rico was over by about 1520, and the Spanish could now start building their colony without having this distraction. Sporadic attacks would continue to take place, however, coming every now and again right through the next decade. These would come from both within Puerto Rico and from the other islands. Sometimes African slaves would manage to escape their masters and they would join these Taino. It's likely that some of these African escapees would have come back later to take part in these raids. As we know, Ponce would not live much longer. In 1521, he went back to Florida on his disastrous second trip. What happened to Ceron is unknown as far as I can tell. Diego did eventually manage to get himself reinstated as Viceroy of the Indies in 1520, and he spent another six years in charge before he died. Perhaps that was part of de Leon's motivation for finally setting off for Florida, although he'd probably been itching to do it for years.
As we saw in previous episodes, Diego's descendants, specifically his son, were eventually given the Duchy of Aragua in Panama and land in Jamaica. This came after yet more legal battles against the Crown to have the rights won by Christopher Columbus recognised. They did not inherit the title of Viceroy of the Indies, as the title is about to become redundant. You'll see why in two episodes' time. First, though, we must return to Spain. While we've been out here covering the Caribbean, big changes have been afoot in Iberia. Until then, thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Latin American History Podcast, written and recorded by Max Sargent. For more information, visit the website www.maxargent.com slash the history of Latin America and that's spelt M-A-X-S-E-R-J-E-A-N-T If you have any comments or questions feel free to get in contact at historyoflatinamericapodcast at gmail.com You can also find the Facebook page by searching for the Latin American History Podcast The Twitter handle is at History Latin AM, and if you've liked the show, you can help out by leaving a review on iTunes. Alternatively, if you visit the website, you'll see that each episode is accompanied by relevant photos. Most of these are my own, taken during my time in Latin America. All these photos and more are available to purchase as prints at my Etsy shop. You can find this at www.etsy.com slash photo. That's spelt www.etsy.com slash m-a-x-s-e-r-j-e-a-n-t photo thanks for listening